Salutare! Acest interviu cu Gil Armio este o încântare pentru mine și a fost o încântare să discut cu asemenea persoană. Ea este o persoană ce a avut grijă de soțul ei, mă l-au deschis o în ultimii 20 de ani și din experiența ei mi-a împărtășit cum a trecut de acest proces de a accepta toate, să spunem așa, problemele cu care s-a confruntat. De asemenea, acum ea a publicat și două cărți, The Unknown Soldier, este o poveste despre cum a reușit să integreze toate poveștile pe care soțul ei l-a spus de-a lungul timpului și cum a trecut peste aceste probleme, de asemenea fiind un veteran și trecând prin războiul din Golf, Gulf War. Așa că sper că și ție o să-ți placă acest episod. Jill este foarte încântătoare și mi-a împărtășit foarte multe lucruri legate și de background-ul ei și de ceea ce a a făcut în trecut și despre familia ei. Momentan ea se ocupă cu scrierea cărților pentru alte persoane, ghostwriting, dar și de a îngriji și de a oferi coaching și suport pentru alți oameni aflați în nevoie, mai ales în această perioadă. Sper să-ți placă și acesta este interviul meu cu Jill Armio. He had a band that he belonged to in the state of Alabama, but he lived in Canada. And one summer, he took me and my sister and my brother for a long trip all over the United States. And he played in the bands, and we went to fairs, and we dipped candles, and we rolled joints, and we strung beads, and we just did all the flower child things. And there was a lot of drinking and a lot of drugs, too. And so it wasn't a very pleasant environment for a five-year-old. Um, it was scary. And it was hard. There was a lot of neglect because they would forget that we needed to eat. And there was abuse, um, not violence, but other kinds of abuse, um, emotional abuse and sexual abuse and, and different things. My sister, at one point, she's very allergic to cats. And at one point, she was having a really bad allergic attack. And they just didn't do anything. And those kinds of attacks when we were little, my mom always took her to the ER and gave her and they gave her, you know, something. I don't even know what it was. Um, must have been a steroid. You know, now I know. But um, back then I didn't know. And we begged my dad to take her to the hospital and he just wouldn't. And so it was a very scary time for me. So when I came back home and I was with my mom, And she had stopped being in that lifestyle and they had separated. So my dad, yeah. when I went on that trip with him, it was with him and his girlfriend and her kids and all of us. And there was tons of kids and, and all that stuff. And so when I came home, I felt so safe with my mom. And so at a very young age, at like six, I had my life planned out. I was going to be like my mom. And when I was almost eight, she remarried an awesome guy, an amazing stepfather who took really good care of us and just unconditionally loved us. And we were brats. And I'm so glad that he, um, you know, did that. So really early in my life, I saw a lot of unconditional love. And I was a recipient of a lot of love. Everybody loved me. We all loved each other. It was hard. You know, my stepsisters and brothers, we were so different. 
but I saw that. And then um, my dad's, my stepdad's mom, my stepdad's dad passed away and my mom and his mom came to live with us and she hated it because it was too noisy. And there was, you know, it was a big family and she hadn't been used to having a big family. So she begged us to take her to the golden living center, which was a nursing home. But I saw my parents try so hard to take care of her and to make our home a place where she could be happy because they didn't want to take her to a nursing home. And I just, I really um, admired my parents for trying so hard to love her and to take care of her. But they finally did what she wanted and took her to the Golden Living Center. And she met a guy, Bob, and they had a wonderful relationship until, you know, she passed away. And and then two more grandparents, my mother's, both of her parents um, needed care. So almost my entire life, my grandma was for 22 years. I saw both of my parents take care of my grandparents through their stuff. And now my mom is taking care of my dad who has Parkinson's. And so my mom has always been a caregiver and I've learned so much from her. But then when I became a caregiver to my husband, he had schizophrenia. He wasn't an old person. He was, he was different. And I held him to a different standard. I knew him before he got sick. He got sick because of the Gulf war. Uh, because of the sarin gas and the PTSD and the things, it just spiraled him into schizophrenia. And I knew him before, and I wanted him to be that guy. So for many years, I thought I needed to fix him. I needed to get him cured. I needed to find the answers and the right medicine or the right treatment. And we never found anything that helped him at all. In fact, because of his schizophrenia, he just immediately thought every doctor and every therapist and every person to take care of him was like, um, uh, had ill intent, just was, um, you know, anxious to uh, hurt him. And so um, I eventually, um, and I did physical therapy for this 30 years, um, since I married him, he actually paid off my school. And um, we, I have always been a physical therapist, I had three kids. So, so I stopped working after each one for a little while until I was able to go back to work. And um, all of this time, I've always been a physical therapist. So I've also seen many, many caregivers crash and burn in their efforts to take care of their loved ones in the best way they knew how. And usually they thought that meant completely ignoring their own needs emotionally. Like they, like every caregiver knows that we should eat right and exercise and do all the things. Um, but it's hard for us to do that because we don't take care of our own emotional health. And that emotional health is the main factor. And so I don't know if it was episode four or five, but you guys were talking about this exact thing, how important our emotions are to recognize them, to work through them. That was what made me really want to reach out to you. Um, I was just like, oh, I want to talk to those guys so bad. And, um, and it's just true. If you take care of your emotional health, then the other stuff is so much easier. And if you don't, you will never be healthy um, because you can't you can't have the wherewithal to 
to do the things you know you should. You just end up in guilt and shame and you think you should better take better care of your person and something goes wrong with them and you just beat yourself up and pretty soon you're your own worst enemy and and then you hide from yourself. You don't even know what you need anymore because you're scared of yourself because you're so judgmental and so harsh and so critical. Yeah, and especially so. now when we... When we kind of um, live in a society when we kind of appear or try to be happy all the time or try to see the good part and positive part of our lives, we kind of forget about um, how we can take care of ourselves, how, we, how can we be uh, in peace with, uh, with our own being and find the strength even in the, um, in the bad times and especially now I feel that um, our society, especially here, is it's uh, it's beginning to be more more and more uh, politicized, and a lot of stuff um, are kind of the media and how media behaves on transmitting this information is trying to 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 like like um, I, I can't find my words, but. It's like just uh, the situation is not so bad as it appears to be in the in the eyes of the media and, and other mm. um, you know influencers, let's say. And uh, I I believe that actually I find myself also in the story that you you were telling because my mom is also a caregiver and uh, mm. it's a caregiver to my grandpa. Since uh, 2008, my grandpa had a stroke basically in the bedroom and um, it, they discovered that she has cancer, uh, cancer tumor it was pretty advanced and afterwards um, she had uh, an operation. Um, she was uh, in the hospital for like two months and then she uh, came back home and she wasn't able to walk anymore. So. Uh, my mom is taking care of her and uh, her sisters, so I know how how it is to have, um, um, let's say, a special relative in the family who needs special care. But this kind of uh, physical problems or mental mental problems, or how we um, put the, the etiquette to all these people that are not like us, not normal people, they. Are uh, they have a uh, much more empathy than us because they uh, they see our feelings and uh, how we can how we project our feelings to them and how we can take care of them and I think it's uh, really beautiful to to take care of other human being and I know how it is because uh, I also take care of my grandpa sometimes so. Um, yeah, you kind of uh, you kind of learn this uh, empathy skills in your family, and it's it's kind of interesting because I wanted to learn the positive things that happened after that uh, event uh, in my family also. So um, uh, you you were telling me about uh, when the, your husband changed and uh, how he suffered from PTSD and other stuff related to the to the. Were. So he's basically now a veteran, but how was the story of him involving in this kind of, uh, you know, going to, to war and uh, what, what, uh, what he, he, he think about that when, when he had that decision? 
Yeah, that's a really good question too. My his dad was in the Second World War, and his dad is a sharpshooter. Was a sharpshooter, and he and one other guy were the only survivors in a particular battle that happened in France, and he had survivor's guilt, and he had PTSD from all of his friends being killed. And he came home and became an alcoholic. And he was very neglectful and abusive of his family. And my husband um, judged him, of course, because, you know, he would earn money. And as soon as he earned his money, he would go and he would go to the bar and he would spend all of it buying drinks for everybody because he wanted companionship from people who didn't judge him. And his family, um, his wife was, it was a arranged marriage. She had to get married to him when she was 16. She loved someone else. It was just a set. I don't think she ever loved him. And, she, and not only that, but she didn't understand him. Of course, you know, they didn't know about PTSD and things like that back then. Yeah. So my, my husband grew up very distant, um, emotionally from his father. And then, so he never wanted to be in the military and, uh, he, but he grew up with very few choices and didn't have the means or the understanding of how to go to college or how to start a business. And he felt like he was um, not smart, which he's totally smart. And so he decided at one point that his only choice, which it wasn't, but that's what he decided was to join the Navy. So he joined the Navy and we met in San Diego uh, while he was going through machinery repair school. And he said, because I didn't want to, I have relatives in the military too, and I didn't want to marry somebody in the military. And I told him the very first time we met, I really don't want to date somebody in the military. And he said, oh, but I'm stationed on a, I'm going to be stationed as soon as I'm finished with A school, I'm going to be on a ship that never goes anywhere. It's called a repair ship. It's, it was called the USS Acadia. It was a tender and it tends to the other ships. And he said, we just stay in dry dock and the ships come to us and we take care of them and we fix them up and I'll never go anywhere. And this was before the war started. So I said, oh, okay. And I was so attracted to him and I loved him right away. And it was a mutual thing. We both just couldn't stay away from each other from the get-go. So we married almost a year later after we met. And then six months later, he was off to the war. And the ship did go to the Gulf three times to take care of other ships. And so that was how he became involved in the war. And the situation that caused um, the trauma to his mind and body also affected 700 other military members in the Gulf at that time because Saddam Hussein uh, did the sarin gas attacks um, over the Gulf and burn the oil in the Gulf. So a lot of them have lung problems and allergies and skin problems and um, joint problems. My husband has really bad fibromyalgia too. But the, the, the one thing that he remembers that was the hardest for him was um, the day, the first time there was a sarin gas warning, all the military people had to uh, stand on the deck 
and um, in their astronaut suits, you know, in their full yeah. hazmat suits. And it was 120 degrees outside. And they had to stand there on the deck for hours and wait for the notice that it was okay to take off their suits. And that was a scary event. Plus when, plus people were passing out right and left, it was too hot. They were losing all of their bodily fluids and they took their suits off. My husband had boils all over his body and the ship was contaminated. Like the sarin gas wasn't gone. It was still there. And so I've talked to some of his friends and they're all sick. All of them have a lot of problems. And so it's pretty sad, but it's not just my husband. And so there's something called Gulf War illness. <clears throat> and it's not just the people that were on the ships, but the people that were on the ground. That's why it's so, uh, so many people have it. So that experience taught him about his dad. And he has a beautiful relationship with his dad, even though his dad has passed away. He understands his dad now and he loves his dad and we have a big beautiful picture of his dad on our wall and he looks exactly like one of our sons and this son is in the military when he told me he was going to join the army I was like you've got to be kidding you see your dad all day every day and you want to you know put yourself <clears throat> potentially you know in that position but my son is so patriotic and he loves um, to save lives. So he's a medic, um, but he's going through Air Force training right now to be a PJ, which is a parajumper, which is kind of like a, um, it's not like a Navy SEAL because it's not offensive, but it's a, it's the guys that go in and rescue the Navy SEALs. So mm -hmm. my son has already saved a lot of lives and he just loves taking care of his troops and they all call him Doc and he just, you know, he thinks he's all that. And so he's off to Paris para-jumping school right now. So yeah. So my husband feels like it's gone full circle and he's so proud of our son. Yeah. And I think uh, it's also like because of the stories that he heard, he wants to involve in the military just to save other people from, you know, suffering and all this trauma and all this harsh environment that he was being into. I think uh, uh, your son was learning a lot by by the stories that he was he was telling him, and now it's like just for providing healing to all these people that are in pain, are in suffering, and maybe who knows how hard it is from them getting back into into the society after they finish their operations, and, and I think this is also what you 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 said in your uh, promo for the book, which which I will go into the detail later in, in the conversation. But um, I, I wanted to to ask you about actually how how it is there in US for veterans and how hard it is for uh, these people who has all this mental issues or not even mental but exposing themselves to such a uh, harsh environment uh, they see violence there and, and it's not a good environment for a human being of course yeah so uh, how, how it is actually in the US for these people to to kind of get back to let's say a normal I think you know blanket statement it's hard it's very hard for 
all of them. I know that some successfully um, get back into uh, civilian life and find jobs that resemble what they did in the military, or they do things that are completely opposite of what they do did in the military. Some go back to school, some start businesses, some do things that they were preparing to do before they entered military service, some dream that they had, you know, oh, I really want to be a doctor or I really want to do this or that. And so some do that. Many um, really struggle with um, addictions, um, a lot of, you know, the demons in their head and nightmares and um, self-injury. And there's um, a lot of suicide, especially there's a bigger percentage of military women that commit suicide than men. Um, it's so hard for women to come back um, after what, you know, yeah, you were because talking they have, about. They have more empathy, I think. And tenders. Yeah. And that's kind of a blanket statement too, because, you know, there's all levels of, of empathy and softness in men and women. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a, a big problem with um, um, military veterans living on the streets and a divorce. Their, their spouses can't, um, can't deal with it. And sometimes they shouldn't deal with it because there's violence or there's abuse or whatever. And so it's really hard. And the VA, the Veterans Administration here in the United States is the government organization that is supposed to help. And they turned us down twice. Um, so they don't help us at all um, because I don't know why they turned us down. They said we didn't send enough information, but we sent a book this thick the first time. <laughs> we sent all kinds of information, lots of stuff from doctors. They interviewed my family members. Uh, my extended family, and then they turned us down. So I don't know why, because he was right there at exactly the same time that um, they say there's this six-month window of, of time during the Operation Desert Storm where those 700 military members were affected, and he was there, and he's one of them, but they said we didn't have enough information. So they don't help us, so we don't have to jump through their hoops, which now I'm really glad of. But back then, I was really angry that they wouldn't um, help us. But now I see that it's for the best because we are operating on our own, and we don't have to you know, report to them all the time, and we don't have to... Um, you know, be part of a system that's really difficult. I know a lot of caregivers of military people who just agonize over all the paperwork they constantly have to fill out and and their their military person has to go for testing all the time. And my husband wouldn't be able to tolerate that. Um, so I'm, I'm just glad that things have turned out. I, I just always say nothing is a surprise to God and everything is happening exactly as it should. It's not like I planned, but it's exactly as it should. And that, that helps me a lot. And, um, and it helps him too. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's strange how, the the governments uh, take care of these people who actually you know put their lives there in in the in the field for the country and for actually saving the and serving the country and saving the civilians or 
putting their lives in the name of, uh, you know, an idea, which is, it's of course um, a really great thing to do that, but yeah, it, it's strange how it, how it is with all this bureaucracy, all these mm-hmm. papers that you should have to fill. Um, we also have here um, the, the healthcare system is not the greatest mm-hmm. in Romania, so I know and I believe you how it is to actually have a special case in family and to kind of receive any kind of support from the government or from the healthcare system. You have to do a lot. You have to actually uh, spend a lot of time just uh, doing some papers, you know, so. Yeah. So I I just on that note, I just want to say that we have been helped so much. So I think the people that help the veterans the most in my country are the private organizations. Um, there's many, many, many hundreds of private organizations that help veterans and families of veterans. And, um, so if anybody wants to know those sources, you can easily look them up or you can call me. Um, there's so many places that you can get help and churches and communities, you know, local, really local. Exactly. And families closer mm -hmm. to the families in the communities. Yeah. yeah, and that's how we got our most help was from our church and community. And people came out of the woodwork to help us and to, you know, take my kids to their, um, you know, music classes or their uh, sports and stuff when they were growing up. And then it was so nice when my kids were finally teenagers and they could drive. And I just, I wanted them to drive everybody's kids to everything because I just felt so grateful for all the people that, you know, would take care of us when my kids were little. And so I think we just, we just take care of each other. And that's, that's the humanity, you know, our government, it just seems like such a big mess. And so many people watch TV and they think everything's so bad, but people are so good. So many people like the TV doesn't show it accurately. The TV doesn't, the the media does not show how people really are. People are good. Mostly I've, I, all of my years as a therapist and as a caregiver and a mom, Everybody I meet is so good, and I just want to say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I also believe the same. The same, and uh, uh, yeah, the, the media—it's also spreading a lot of fear nowadays. But um, for example, here when the the virus, uh, like in March this year, when uh, when the story of of the virus was just spreading. Um, there was a lot of organizations to actually buy food for the older people in need or just uh, donating money and uh, support for churches, for healthcare system, for um, just non- non-profit organizations. Like um, a lot of people from a community just came up together without any formal institution, let's say that we don't need any formal institution. We, did, we just came together and we put together all the resources that we have and help others in need. So was a point in, at the beginning when this kind of vibe was all over society here. So it was amazing, actually. It was amazing to see how people came together to help others. Um, yeah, and, and uh, of course, <laughs> afterwards, uh, the, because of 
the media and other stuff, we we didn't get um, to sustain that movement to be together. And now it's a lot of dividing and other things like that. But uh, I don't want to go in that, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so basically, uh, you you get a lot of help for 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 uh, you know growing up your children. I think as a as mom growing growing three children is it's complicated thing, right? Uh, wanted to ask actually, what are what what's the age of your kids and what they are doing now? They they entered college or they have their own thing going on. Yeah, they all have their own thing. My oldest is 29 and he is married to the most wonderful girl in the world and they okay. have a daughter and she's 15 months. Wow. So she's nice. adorable. <laughs> she's so funny and so smart, of course, because I'm her grandma, but okay. I, I think she's the smartest baby ever. <laughs> but anyway, of course, I because I just got home from visiting with her and I'm in love. And... Um, he is a um, mechanical engineer. He works for an industrial oven company. They make industrial ovens. They've been in business since early 1960s. And so they've been around for a long time and he loves his job. There's a lot of guys that he works with and one girl um, in their team. And they just um, stick their noses into their jobs. And most of them just aren't really... Um, like very social but that's why they're engineers because they do the numbers and they're very yeah. very kind to each other and they they took him under their wing you know he made a lot of mistakes right at first and uh he was nervous and everything but he's doing fabulous right now and he's made some amazing ovens and so he's doing really good and um so when i was there i went and took pictures of i mean he he stands in front of his ovens and the doors are like you know, twice as tall as he is. And it's just amazing what he can create, but he has um, the desk and he's the engineer, but then other people build them. So he goes down to the shop two or three times a day just to watch them building his designs. And he's just so in awe of, you know, how that all works. And so it's really fun for him. Yeah. yeah to, to actually bring his ideas into reality. And yeah. So he's a, a creative, like, like us and he, and he loves it. And so, and all my kids are very creative. They all drew a lot when they were growing up and they took art classes and they did a lot of music and they're all musicians. They love their music. My oldest son plays the violin and the piano and the guitar. <clears throat> and he's very good at the the violin and the guitar mostly. And he's learning the piano and he's doing good. He learns it really fast. And so then my next son, he's the one in the military and he is 27. So he's almost two years younger than my oldest. And um, he has always been um, really soft hearted. Actually, all my boys, I don't know why I'm singling him out, but because he's the medic, when he was a kid, he would stick up for the girl that stuttered that the bullies were teasing, you know, and yeah. I actually had parents and teachers call me and say, I don't know what you're doing, but thank you so much. Your son did this thing. And um, so he's been like that. So when he was in first grade, his 
teacher was recovering from a knee surgery she had in the summertime. And so she was limping and it was really hard for her to, you know, teach. And so he would get his homework, his work done really fast. And he would go up to the front and ask her what she needed. You know, do, do you need me to erase the chalkboard? Do you need me to carry something somewhere? And every day he would, he was his little teacher's helper. She loved him. It was so cute. And so, and then my youngest son, He's uh, 21 and he is going to school only 20 minutes from where I live, which is so fabulous because we meet him for lunch every Friday. My husband and I go and take him to lunch and he didn't do a lot of talking at first, but now he just goes on and on and on and on and tells us all the things that are going on. And so it's so great. And I'm really proud of him. He's going to be an electrical engineer. So I think he a lot of he creative people in the family. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. caregivers and you know, giving from the heart to others and be the ones that take care of others. <laughs> it's it's yeah. like 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 parents like uh, like sons. <laughs> yeah. I didn't get the musical ability. I tried learning some instruments and I just suck. I just, uh, by the time I learned a, a song or a piece, I hated it so bad. I never wanted to hear it again. So I just finally yeah. thought, oh, I'll just listen <laughs> instead yeah. of. I, I always think that in, in music is like, you have, you need uh, some talent to, to figure it out. You need some yeah. talent. It's the same as <laughs> in, so. uh, in, in uh, you know, drawing and painting. If you don't have yeah. any talent in that, you it's really hard to learn or yeah or the same in music it's like you have to you know have that spark in, in your to right actually be good at that yeah i also uh, my parents you know gave me a present when i was like three or four give, give me a violin and i was just uh, you know Aww. just uh, uh playing with other children with with, with the violin it's not like uh, you know uh, singing just like <laughs> throwing it and i was a mess when i was children really <laughs> Like you that type really energy guy, you know. Like, yeah, <laughs> I uh, can imagine that. I was that one, yeah. 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 So nice, uh, really nice family, and I wish your family all the best. Um, Thank and you. I hope they will do what they like. Like this is the most important thing, and uh, to be healthy and to grow in a good and positive way. That's the most important thing, I think. And really to be kind of open-minded to accept whatever comes because it's, we, we live in pretty, uh, you know, uncertain times. And it, it's, it's nice, it's nice. I think, I think you're really proud of that uh, side of you. And I want to talk more um, that we kind of, you know, uh, meet each other and uh, find that you have a beautiful family um around your career how how is the are how the projects are going right now and what you're doing now what you want to, to build in the future what you're preparing for yeah so i have a few um caregiver clients that i coach and i love them but i am not um, a good salesperson. <laughs> I have a really hard time with that. And I am trying to build that. But in the meantime, early on in my um, building of my business, since I didn't have um, any clients at one point, I decided to write my book because <clears throat> I was waiting for my kids to help me or for this coach to help me. I would get stuck and I wouldn't know what to do next. So I thought, well, I'll just 
you know, while I'm stuck, while I'm waiting for David to call me and help me, I'll write my book. So that was what, why I wrote my book. Everybody had told me for many years that I should write a book about me and my husband. And I just thought, felt like I never had time. And so then I had time. And so I thought no more excuses. So I wrote this book and people love the book, but they're like, how did you write that? Because it's so vulnerable because it's, it's just us. Like it's the story of all the things I did wrong, taking care of my husband, all the things he, you know, like, like I was such a victim at first because his delusions, I didn't know how to handle them. I didn't know what to do with him. I worked so hard to get him fixed and got so angry and just I we together were such a mess and we were constantly yelling at each other I have no idea how our kids turned out so good they're just good people um but we really really struggled and I put it all in the book like I just wanted to put it out there because people had asked me all of these questions over the years and so after during the writing of my book I began to have a completely different perspective about my relationship with my husband. And when I finished the book and other people bought it and read it and I coached them and I saw how much it helped them in their life, it gave me such a new perspective on why we went through that. I know you like to say, you know, everything happens for a reason. And I used to not believe that because (laughs) I thought there is no reason for this happening. (laughs) There cannot be any good come of this, but it's really true. And all of our pain and all of our struggles are, are for a really good reason. Like it's helping a lot of people and I'm so thankful for that. And so I have this totally different perspective on our life than I used to. And I'm helping other people have a totally different perspective on their life. Um, I have a client right now whose um, partner is um, dealing with, he's having a really hard time. He's trying not to do drugs, but he's, he's, he, you know, does drugs. And like, she kept trying to think that he has to not do drugs. And if he can't, behave himself, then I need to, you know, separate, but he's not, um, harm. He's not hurting her. He's a really good partner in a lot of ways. He just has this struggle. And she's so grateful that she met me about a year ago because she appreciates him so much more. And she doesn't have so much angst with him. Like he hasn't really improved since we, like my job isn't to fix him. My job as her coach is to help her. And we have these conversations and just all I do is ask her questions. Well, sometimes I teach her a little bit, but mostly my, my uh, clients just need to see how their brain is working. So like her biggest problem used to be that when she caught him uh, using, she would get upset with him and she would um, threaten him or bribe him or go stay with her sister or, you know, do all these things that would make them kind of, uh, distance themselves emotionally from each other and be angry with each other. And, and we just, she realized that 
when she catches him using, um, and she doesn't even try to catch him anymore. She just like, she'll realize that he used and she'll talk to him and she'll comfort him and she'll say, you know, what's going on and is there anything I can do to help you? And so she, she kind of went through this process when she found out he was using in a particular situation, she would think to herself, of course, he's using, you know, he had this tough time at work, you know, and that's not an excuse to use, but I can uh, be there for him as his partner instead of um, criticizing him. And so they are so much closer now. Um, and I think she's helping him. And I know that with drug use, with almost everybody, it's a big, long process um, getting well and getting um out of um the use and sometimes people have to hit rock bottom and sometimes they are able to recover because of just incessant love from their supporters and so i'm just hoping that you know she can uh, make the right choices for her and just continue to love him and even if they have to separate if she can separate but still love him then it will be so much better for him than if she separates because she's angry and um, and doesn't, you know, she's told me there's no way she could never not care for him. She, she loves him, you know? And so I, as my, as a coach, I just really, really want to help people love each other and love all the people in their stories. So many caregivers, they're so angry at their family because their family doesn't understand and their family wants to help, but their family doesn't have a clue how to help. And so they kind of judge them, you know, and they think their family doesn't want to help, but their family really does want to help. They just don't know what to do. And so I, I help them see with their thoughts so that they can um, realize how they're telling themselves the wrong story. Like most of us are telling ourselves the wrong story. And if we can just see that story and see that we can change the story because every, every situation can be looked at in a different way. Like I could almost be an existentialist, except that I believe in God. And I do believe that there's purpose and everything, but really it's all how you, there's hardly any facts. Like there's no facts. It's just how we perceive our world. There are facts, but most of our story we look at and we think it's all so true, but most of it is just how we're perceiving it. And I know that's kind of deep and weird, but but that's what really helps the most. Well, this is this is what the podcast is for. So really deep into things, and uh, yeah, yeah I, I'm into philosophy and. Um, mm. I really yeah, believe that's right. yeah, like the existential movement was um, kind of, you know, um, just not uh, uh, the people were changing their perspective from the status quo and how the things were perceived at that time in the, yeah. in the early 20th century. And, and, and that was so like, important. Dostoevsky was like the first who had this kind of stories around. Uh, he he made a really literal stories about how people behave in the day, day to day lives, but in that stories was a deep deep meaning mm -hmm. about the relationship of the humans with God, humans with other humans. That what truth is, uh, what kind of um, I, I was reading really the, in this quarantine a lot of uh, books related to that. And I'm into philosophy, so now I think it's a big thing with the Stoic uh, 
paradigm like to you know just endure all the hard truth of life and uh, you know life is suffering and we have to overcome it so yeah i'm kind of a believer in that but i also think that there are beautiful and really kind of miracles in life and like a, a part of mysticism that i believe in but i also think that a lot of this life is suffering and a lot of the life is just accepting uh, the hard truths of life and that we are not immortals and uh, yeah, it's just uh, kind of uh, understanding all the hard truths of that and accept it. Yeah. Yeah. Emotional health is not about being happy all the time. It's exactly. about understanding that it's okay to have some pain. And, and when you accept that, then you just think, okay, this is the part of my day when I'm scared to death and I'm going to live and it's going to be okay. And I'm and then I'll be happy later. And I can just, and then you don't have to be so scared because you're not trying to resist it. And it just even, it evens it out a little bit to, to just accept it instead of try to um, bury it and ignore it. <clears throat> exactly. Some Freudian, uh, <laughs> paradigm they're like uh, you know don't repress your emotions because they will come back and they'll be stronger yep. <laughs> yeah so uh, i wanted to talk about your book so you wrote actually uh, two books right or you're just uh, in the process of writing the second one you have oh, one yeah. finished the home of unknown soldier which which is on amazon and you had amazing reviews there um and um you you're telling something like um the book was helping you to overcome um uh, like all the struggling or all the suffering that you go through because you didn't understand what uh what was happening and how to react to your husband problems and how to deal with all the emotional uh, you know drama and all the stress back then so the help uh, the, the the book help you uh, share your story with the world and you're teaching other other clients to also share their stories so what uh, what made you actually wrote the book uh, and uh, if you can have and tell the audience a brief description about uh, what what is there okay so uh, yeah i just wanted to tell the world my story because uh people asked me questions all the time because I would come to work and <clears throat> I, like I said, early on, I was such a victim. I am so thankful for all my coworkers over the years who listened to me tell my wild stories every morning. Oh, you know, my husband, you know, uh, thinks he knows when Jesus is coming and that I should call somebody and tell him. And I, didn't call and so he got mad and so I went for a walk and so that's why I'm late and you know so people would be like oh and so what you know and they would ask questions and so I thought you know I'm just tired of always having to answer all the questions so I'm just going to write it and if somebody asks me a question I'll just hand them a book just just read it and so um I started the book with um just an introduction about um the model that I use, which is the cognitive behavioral therapy model to um, explain why we create our own results, why our circumstances have very little to do with 
our actions. It's all our emotions and our thoughts. It's our thoughts that create our emotions and our thoughts um, are reflective of our results in our life, of our actions and our results. And so I just introduced that model just to show it. And then in each chapter, and each chapter is a story about our life together. Um, and then in each chapter, I have a model of how I did it wrong or how my husband did it wrong or my son or, or maybe they did it right, but it was different than how they may have done it or thought about it or the emotions. It's kind of hard to explain, but so each chapter is a story. The very first chapter is the time when my husband came home from work because he had quit his job because he was afraid they had tried to kill him at work and he was crying and he was upset. And this happened more times as he, you know, cause they begged him to come back to work. He went back to work and it happened again. And the guys were talking behind his back and then he stopped going to church and then, and just all of these things. So every time he quit a job, it was because of the delusion that he was having. So that was my first chapter. And then I start from the beginning and tell about how we met and the love story. And that's a couple of chapters. And then I tell about how he came home from Gulf war uh, and that was the beginning of when I realized something was wrong because we had an incident soon after he came home that, um, you know, later on, I thought I should have divorced him then. <laughs> For a long time, I thought, why didn't I just divorce him at that incident? because that was so unacceptable and it just kind of became the pattern for how we behaved together for all those years. But then I'm glad that I didn't divorce him because he needed me and I needed him. And, and it's all been a journey that has um, been good in the end. And so um, anyway, lots of crazy stories um, literally and um, just the adventure, all the moves that we made, trying to find him the right kind of help. We moved five different times during the course of just the story and or six a lot of times. And um, so and then at the end, like the last chapter just shows how um, how happy we are. We I just talk about how we do things differently now, how we look at our situation differently. So he still has delusions all the time, every day. And I think different things about his delusions. I don't think anymore that I need to convince him otherwise. And I just think, you know, of course, you know, he's thinking that because this or, wow, I can't believe he is having that problem. You know, he, he just recently started having an olfactory delusion, which is a thing that happens with schizophrenia where he thinks he smells cigarette smoke and there is no cigarette smoke and it's re very real to him. And he's miserable because he's smelling cigarette smoke. So instead of being annoyed with him and trying to show him, look, there's no smoke. And I'm the one that's usually sensitive to the cigarette smoke and I'm not smelling. Instead of going through all that and getting into a big fight, I just tell him, I'm so sorry. That's so miserable feeling like you know, smelling that smoke, that's got to be awful. You know, would you like to go to the park or, you know, I just, instead of trying to solve it, I, I can help him through it and I can help me in it. And just, so we're a partnership or a couple again, instead of always battling um, this illness. Oh, this is so powerful. 
and uh, it's like you 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 enter his story and you accept what he's seeing or what he's smelling or what he uh, is hearing and uh, it, it's getting through through all that together and um, it's not like just rejecting all what he's feeling and just telling him yeah look this is the truth you are wrong it's just accepting what he's telling and um, try to get through that uh, you know together and and i think it's uh, it needs a lot of maturity and emotional work to get through all of this uh, this together and uh, i believe it's really hard for you for for the, through the how have been you been married with with your husband Actually. We we've been married for we had our 30th wedding anniversary this year. So wow, so 30 yeah. years. It's a long time, and, and it, it's kind of a long process, right? Yeah, it's a long process, and I can just see, um, you know, still there's going to be a lot of pain, but still I'm going to love him, and he's going to love me, and we're just going to keep going. Like I'm I'm not going to give up, and it seems so easy now to think that I'm not going to give up for a long time. I thought, you know, when my kids were growing up, I thought, because my kids love my husband, he's a good dad. He's a good man. He took them to the park all the time. You know, he, they're lucky that they had a dad at home to take them to the park. He hasn't worked in over 20 years. And so, um, you know, I always worked and they missed me and they wished I could be there, but man, they had a fun life as kids they had to listen to their stupid parents argue way more than I wish they would have too. So it wasn't all roses, but, um, they all, um, like my youngest son, he took, um, psychology in high school and did a research paper on schizophrenia. And he's the one that taught me how to validate my husband instead of, you know, try to make my husband get in my world. I should get in his world. And, um, so, You know, they're really lucky in one way that they have this beautiful understanding of people who don't think like they do. And yet it's okay that they don't think like they do. Like there's nothing wrong with them. And there's nothing wrong with a situation where somebody is delusional. It's just the situation. It doesn't have to be bad. It doesn't have to be a problem. You don't have to solve for it. You just have to get along and just love each other and not judge. Yeah, and have exactly. compassion. It happens usually for this uh, this type of people to be um, to have a good heart and to mm -hmm. um, understand people in a way that we are not understand others. And um, in my experience with um, with other children with Milton problems or kind of special children, they have. Um, they are capable of loving others in a way that um, it's really hard for me to, to love others. And, and I'm deeply loving other people. And I really believe that uh, in a way, everyone is, uh, is a good human being and everyone has good intentions. Yeah. And uh, I truly want to share the message and share this message to the world because we are living in a time that maybe not all of us believe uh, this truth that is 
um, everyone is struggling to improve, to be better, to um, to show the the good in themselves, and everyone is in a, in their hearts uh, a good person. Uh, yeah. And I also meet um, really amazing people through, through my life. So I share the same experience as you. I wanted to ask, actually, um, you are also doing um, ghostwriting and you are uh, writing a lot. Um, what is uh, actually writing for you? And uh, it's actually helping you to, you know, just put your thoughts in on a paper or help others to share their stories. Um how you work with with others that uh, need your services, for example? So if someone wants me to write their book, because I can coach somebody to write their own book too. And usually people want to do that because they're worried that somebody else isn't going to get it right. Because I, obviously I don't know them, you know, no matter how much they tell me, I don't know how they feel for sure. And so, and I get that. And I would rather people write their own book but especially for people that are really, really busy like you or, you know, somebody who uh, has the money rather than the time, they would rather have somebody write like maybe a business book or something that's not their memoir. Like I could write somebody's memoir. I'm actually writing a biography right now. It's so fascinating, this woman. But um I could write probably anything you wanted me to. I think I could write a fantasy or a fiction. I have written a fiction book that was somebody else's book. Um, that was so interesting and and it was really fun. But um, so I I could write your thing. But what happens is you tell me that you want me to write your book and I interview you a ton. So before COVID, I would go to your house and I would walk with you in places that you like to be. Like if you wanted to bring me to your favorite, um, you know, restaurant or where you hike or um, go to dinner or go to a movie or go, um, you know, whatever, um, then I would just see what you love, see what makes you tick, ask you tons of questions. And now we can just do it online. So I don't even have to fly to, you know, Arkansas or wherever. And I can just talk to you online and you can show me your house and, um, and stuff. So anyway, I just get to know you really, really well. And then I get to know what you want to write about. So you would, um, if I was writing a finance book for you, you would send me all the diagrams and all the information. So you would almost practically be writing your book <laughs> or I would take you know your blog site and just read all your blogs and put them together in a way that you know flows with your your principle of your finance that you're trying to teach um and so I just put it all together and it's a process like I don't just write it and then say here's your book I write a little bit and send it to you so you can give me feedback and tell me you know this isn't really what I meant, um, or this is what I meant, or, oh, I need to fix this diagram. I, I didn't write a, a math book for this lady. She sort of wrote it herself. She actually had somebody else help her write it, but it was such, uh, such an overhaul because she knows what she's thinking and she thinks that we're following her, but it was great to have me help out because I was able to 
notice all the glitches where I didn't follow her. And I, I know quite a bit of math, but not as much as her. And so she's writing it for teachers to be able to teach math. And I know a lot of teachers don't know any more math than I do because I did really good on a, on a teacher's math test one time when I was going to be a teacher way back when. And so I, um, I told her, you've got to explain this better and you've got to explain this better. So she had so much work to do after I saw her book, but it made the book a gazillion times better so that teachers would actually be able to take what she knew and what she wanted them to know so that they could teach math better. And so that was a fun project. That was hard. That was a real challenging project, but it was very rewarding and she loves the book. So, and it's almost to be published. It's not quite published yet. So So, I was really proud of that one. So it's great that you actually um, have a really deep process into understanding the mind of the the client and you ask a lot of questions. It's like to have a firsthand experience on, on his life. Um, If it's a biography and autobiography, it's a, you know, you have to know a lot about him, <laughs> like the personal yeah. stories um, and the deep stories in their lives that actually change them and make them who they actually are, right? So I yeah. think it's really interesting to have um, in this type of intimacy in, in the people's lives because uh, sometimes we are not showing our, uh, as I said before, we are not showing our true uh, life on social media and, and other stuff like that on the on the internet or whatever but uh, if you are speaking with someone uh, really closely you understand all their problems or their frustrations um, and you kind of uh, have a deep connection i think life is also about having re- these really deep connections with others you know sharing uh, deep experiences together and I think they are confident because they also uh, trust you, uh, that you, you're doing a great job with uh, and sharing their story in a good and positive way. And of course, you also learn a lot because uh, there are new subjects, like you said, like yeah. analysis, business, marketing, or or other other things, right? So, yeah, um, yeah uh, it's, it's really great. I mean, to write a book, it's a deeply fulfilling and a deeply creative um, um, act. And, and I want to ask you, where did you find the inspiration to write? Or I, I talk with some writers and uh, I also trying to write uh, myself a journal or to keep myself uh, organized in the last few months, especially, and uh, wanted to ask, uh, where did you find the inspiration to actually pass a bad day when you are not so inspired to write anything or have a bad day? Oh, <laughs> writer's block? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I actually just did a blog post on this because I think writer's block is just a, a, an excuse not to work. And um, I, have a, I have an actual saying that I teach my clients too, that overwhelm is an excuse for, or let's see, how do I say it? Overwhelm is a reason not to act. And I have used that a lot on myself in in the past, like, oh, this is just too much. I can't do it. So I'll go take a nap. And so um, when you sit down and you can't think of what to write, 
And that gives you an excuse to scroll media or to daydream, which is a good activity to do if you're intentionally daydreaming um, or whatever. You, you aren't writing, even though you have a message to write. Um, you just aren't serving in the way that you need to be serving. And you need to figure out a way to start writing, even if it's, I don't know what to write. Um, my um, paper is white. My pen is blue. Maybe I want to write with a, a green pen today. And then you just you just start like I've done this to myself. Like um, you just have to write. You look out the window and write what you see, or you you know talk about your dog's fur that's sitting on your lap and uh, when she needs a bath or whatever. And you just start writing malarkey, and then you flow. Then you start writing. Like, this is a true thing. You just have to start writing. And in my blog post, I uh, I just kind of compared it to physical therapy, which is what I have done for so long. And I said, when I get to work and I have, there's no such thing as physical therapy block. Like, I can't just go to work and say, I don't know what to do with you today. So I'm not going to do anything with you. You have to go and smile at the patient and you have to ask them a question about how they're feeling and what they're experiencing and what they'd like to work on. And, and you, you, you know, and they don't want to complain sometimes. So you have to prompt them, you know, it's not complaining. I'm your therapist. It's reporting. What hurts? Can I get you a hot pack before we start? Should we do an active warm up and make it feel better that way? What will work for you? And so as a physical therapist, you cannot have physical therapist block. You have to do something. You have to take that patient and help that patient in the best way you know how. And you, you, you know, put on your tennis shoes in the morning and you don't stop. You don't sit down at your desk and think, well, I don't know what to do next. And it's the same thing with anything. If you are a musician, you don't just sit at the piano and stare at the keys. You just start playing something. And um, and then it comes. You just have to act. And then the beauty the beauty comes. Exactly. 100%. Uh, it's the actually to start doing something that you love is the... Uh, it's the hard part and because um, it's a process and writing a book is not um, one day thing or a week thing it's just uh, be constant in your work and deliver every time something even if you have a bad day I think uh, it's it's great if you can overcome that and even if you write just a lot of not so great things and you are not inspired it's a lot of bullshit or whatever it's just great to put them on paper and see at the end of the day like yeah i did this but even if it's not too good i did something right and yeah especially in the you know physical activity going to the gym it's really hard to, to just put yourself in that uh, uh, you know uh, working uh, clothes and go to work out and just do it and start it and because it's just nothing will be perfect and I think uh, also what we are teaching to the clients that we are having a lot of them are engineers and um, you know entrepreneurs and Entrepreneurs uh, have this uh, syndrome that they want all the things to work perfectly. Uh, they want to um, uh, understand everything that happens in their business. They want to control everything. So a lot of them are like these control freaks. And uh, and we, we try to teach them. It's, it's just uh, not about 
um, controlling everything because not nothing is perfect. It's just doing it and you'll see ways to improve and do it mm-hmm. over and over again till you actually get better. And you will see uh, that you'll get better at something. It's impossible to not see after you wrote uh, 1,000 1, pages that you actually are a better writer than just before, right? And mm-hmm. just reading about how to be a good writer. Just doing it. This yeah. is a this is a thing. Yeah, my first book, like I'm already not that proud of it. It's a it's a good book for people that don't know what a good book is <laughs> because it can help people. But oh my goodness, if I had to write it over again now that I am better at writing, I would it would be a major overhaul. So first books are just that you and it's just the same thing with your first engineering project or your first um, sales call or your first anything. It's not going to be pretty and but it's going to help somebody like maybe that person's going to say yes. And maybe that person's going to or maybe that diagram is going to give you an idea for something new that you never thought of before. And so, yeah, the the creative process is not um you know a percentage of goodness that ha- you have to meet or or anything like that i my coach um tells me b minus work is is great and i i tell my kids when they go through college i tell them c means degree and so it's okay if they don't get an a on on everything and all the way through high school my kids were so hard on themselves and i told them you don't have to get a's this school system is so retarded anyway because exactly. mm-hmm. they only they only grade you on what you know how, like how useful is that and yeah the teachers are awesome and the teachers teach good things but then they should give you a test and see where you are and then know what to teach next not stamp a grade on your face and make you feel like you're stupid because you're still learning it that's just so destructive. And I have a whole nother soapbox about that, but I'll stop right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I totally agree with you here on the education is actually a big thing here in my country now. I just spoke on the last podcast with a with guy who is involved in, uh, he has lectures on a lot of uh, kindergartens and uh, and the schools and um yeah, I was talking with him about the educational system, and um, yeah, here we have a lot of things going on now, uh, especially because of, the, of this online schools, right? Because not everyone can do the you know online school, right? And uh, it's like the the discrepancy between the rich people who has. Um, you know, their kids with three laptops and they can also have like a private school that is actually a teacher goes to their house and teaching them with the other, um, you know, not so fortunate kids that don't have all this technological uh, stuff, devices, they can Mm -hmm. actually go to school because of this. So uh, it's, we have to also help uh, this kind of people. And I think, I, be, I believe in the, um, there is a big also, uh, I think debate now also in the US around the opportunity, the, um, to have uh, op- equal opportunities mm-hmm. of, of all the kids because uh, yeah, I don't believe in, of course, uh, equal outcomes out of their work, like just to, 
some ideas like universal basic income or just, uh, you know, paying everyone the same amount of money or like this kind of social things. I don't think they work, but right. I, I believe that it's great to actually help the kids in needs. And I think this coronavirus yeah. did a lot of trouble there. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm into the this educational uh, training of children. And I, I want to ask you if you have been involved in some activities around teaching kids or, um, you know, uh, actually delivering some free stuff to them. You have been involved in this kind of activities? Not really. <clears throat> um, I have been, you know, in the US, it's called the PTA, the Parent Teacher Association. I, I've tried to be an active participant in my children's schooling. And at one point in between jobs, when I moved my husband and when I moved our family because of problems, I could not find a job immediately. So I went to the local university to just get a certificate to teach. And so I did some, some student teaching and I had a deep dive into what's going on in the school system and learned about it, but I never really became a teacher because then I found a job in physical therapy. And uh, so not really, but I've also seen my sister, she's a speech therapist and she is in the school system and she has been doing that for even longer than you know, for a long, long time. And so I see what she's up against with, you know, the bureaucracy, but at the same time being a buffer and wanting to take the best care of her students that she can. Um, so she follows the rules, but she also does the best that she can while, you know, cutting yeah. corners and yeah. stuff like that with, with her documentation and stuff like that. And that, as a physical therapist, we have to do that too, because you have to explain every little thing that you do with your patient nowadays. Whereas when I started, you spend all your time taking care of the patient and then just five minutes of doing, you know, this is what we did today, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> now you have to take your computer with you while you go treat the patient and mostly stare at your, comp your computer while your patient does a few things. And so I just, I just don't do that. I clock out at the end of the day and then I do my two hours worth of paperwork because I, I'm a hands-on therapist. I'm not somebody who's going to stare at my computer and hope my patient does their therapy right. Like, what is that? And so it, that's partly why I got out of physical therapy. I was so unhappy at work with all the, uh, with all the requirements, but anyway, with, with education, I, um, I just love, I just want to say that I love all my students, teachers, they have been amazing. Like teachers are between such a rock and a hard place because they know what they, they, most of them want to teach because either they are passionate about their subject or they're passionate about children learning or maybe both. And they aren't teachers because of the money. We know that because there is no money. And um, so they're amazing. But the school system, the requirements of the bureaucracy is that students, you know, show um, uh, progress in specific uh, measurable areas and it's created a situation where students don't get to explore 
um, what they're really interested in, in a way that their teacher could show them so much more about what they're interested in. Kids are interested in learning. Kids love to learn. The problem isn't that kids don't want to learn. The problem is that because of all these requirements, teachers don't have the capacity in their day to show how this kid's skateboarding love could be um, uh, embellished or um, added to by a knowledge of the physics or the math or um, whatever goes into, you know, doing the coolest flip turn in the world. Um, when I was in school, we, I had a kinesiology class and we each were supposed to do a physical activity, a sport, an exercise, something, and create a mathematical explanation of it. And I did a push up, this one little thing, and it was a 20 page report. And that was my experience with a real life situation and putting it in a mathematical context. And if kids could have that kind of an experience in elementary school, they wouldn't hate math. They'd think it was amazing. And the teachers just don't, can't do that. They, they don't have the capacity to do that because instead of doing that for each child and maybe letting the whole class watch this experience happening, which I think would be such a great teaching avenue, they all have to study these problems and they all have to study this same history becomes so boring and history is amazing. And if they could just talk about one story in history, instead of learn all the dates and places and people and, and stuff, if they could just talk about a story for a week about a particular person, you know, if they could just take a person in history, um, somewhere in the world besides the U.S. and somewhere in the U.S. and maybe a family member and maybe, you know, and make it real for them. It would just be so much better. And these poor kids, they just have to sit in their chairs and uh, be like everybody else. Equality is not sameness. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And we can't, uh, you know, um, judge everyone by the same measures like mm -hmm. the educational system we're doing right now like the iq point on the math test it's not the best way to actually judge a class of 30 people like i don't know in us how it is but here in like um, public schools we i i i was i had a uh, like 30 people uh, 30 kids class and imagine just one teacher that have to teach 30 kids that are completely different. There is no like kind of test that before you enter high school, for example, that kind of, uh, you know, um, just filter all this interest by like what is of interest to you at that point or when you are like uh, sixth grade or seventh grade, what you're interested in, nobody asks you these questions and uh, yeah, you have like the same, you know, uh, classes and you don't have to, you, you don't have choices. You have to go with this program. And usually this program is, uh, is uh, old. And uh, yeah, we also um, believe in this, like people learn through stories and we teach our clients that 
they can uh, share their story of their business with the clients. And when they have a sales call, just to share some stories because people relate to the stories and uh, actually they grow their sales because of this. So we get ama amazing results with the clients. We are happy about teaching them how to make a good story and how to teach them. So yeah, it's kind of frustration, but it's also an opportunity for us as a creatives as businesses as uh, caregivers to, to you know uh, teach people all of these stuff because are powerful and uh, actually can improve a lot of, of these people's lives or businesses uh, I, I just wanted to ask you which kind of problems are, are the people coming to you know for 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 solving them to you is also like physical problems and pains related to their physical body or just uh, some trauma from their experiences? Uh, well, so people that know me um, and come to me just because they know me because they're my friend or an associate or something, usually that's because uh, they, I just got to notice that I'm running out of juice. I forgot to plug in my computer, but um, they come to me because they know I have my physical therapy background. So some people do come to me and say, you know, my foot is hurting or my back is hurting. And can you help me? But the people that I meet online because of my marketing um, or through my book or whatever, they come to me because mostly because they're caregiving for someone and they are desperate for help because they feel like they don't know what to do next and it's too hard and uh, they're feeling a lot of um frustration and overwhelm and they have let themselves go and a lot of them do need help with diet and exercise or um just self-care as far as some meditation or some uh relaxation, some stretching, some journaling or, or whatever, they need those things. But what I focus on is the their thoughts and emotions so that they can get to a place where it's easier for them to implement all the things they think they should be doing. Because if I just tell them, oh, you should do this and you should do that, that's not going to help them at all because they everybody already knows what they should do. They just don't know how to um, make it what they want. And so I help them see their brain, help them create the story that makes what they know they should do what they want or ditches what they think they should do. Because a lot of people think they should do a lot of stuff that they really shouldn't. Like they, they just don't have the capacity for that right now. You can't do everything. You know, exactly. you can't, you can't do it all. Um, let me think you, yeah. Just, just wanted to, you know, uh, said say that I ex experienced it in in my life also, like uh, this sensation of burnout and uh, overwhelm, and uh, you don't have to do everything. Like, especially as an entrepreneur, uh, as a businessman, uh, also this these guys have these sensations of. I have to do everything every time. <laughs> so no, you don't have to do anything. You can outsource a lot of things and people actually will do a great work. And um, we have like this rule that if someone can do 60% of your output, just outsource that. <laughs> so I wanted to ask, um, what 
is the advice or just a recommendation that you are giving to people who are overwhelmed during this period or have a um, really hard loss during this time or uh, are dealing with uh, the same problems are, as you in, 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 in your life, like um, having maybe a um, relative with some health problems? Uh, so that's kind of a hard question because everybody is unique. And as a coach, I, yeah. I have a program, I know, but I rarely use it. Like I have a starting point if somebody has no idea what they want to work on, but most people, so my clients come to me with all of these stories, this is happening. And so this, and that's happening. And so that. And so I help them look at how they're looking at it. And um, somebody that I just interviewed the other day and work our first, our first meeting is today. I'm so excited to work with her because she has a husband that she's caring for and three children that all have some, uh, you know, uh, mental disorders and they're all functioning and they're, they're all beautiful people. But she just has all these stories of how inept they all are and how they don't, don't do what they should do. And most of us think, like even parents, we judge our kids. We think our kids should do this and our kids should do that. Like when my son told me he was going to join the army, I, I, really, I really had to just not get in the way of him doing what he wanted to do. And that was hard for me, but thankfully I already knew at that point that our kids know the best about what they should do. And if they're not getting good grades, it's okay. They, they need to not get good grades. They need to play video games. Maybe, you know, I, I hate it when, cause some people come to me and this lady that I'm going to talk to today, she has a child who, um, and he's grown. He's in his uh, early 30s, I think. And he plays video games all the time. And he doesn't work. And he's dependent on her and his wife, you know. And he's, she thinks that he's just wasting his life. And when I hear a parent say that their child is wasting their life um, when they could be doing this and they should be doing that, I am so excited to talk to them and ask them all these questions about why their child is, why they think their child is doing that or um, what they, what they think their child might gain from doing that. And what would be um, the other way of looking at why, at what he's doing. And people are amazed at what they can come up with about the benefits of what someone is doing that they think is wrong. Um, we all need to grow in our own way and in our own time and in our, in our own interests. And this guy that's in his 30s that's playing computer games, for whatever reason, that's the best he knows with what he's with what he knows right now. And um, so I'm excited to talk to her and I kind of left you guys hanging. You're probably going to want to know what the outcome is and mm -hmm. she's not going to change him, 
but she's going to change her view about him. And she's going to be at so much peace after we talk to her about her feelings and her thoughts and why she's choosing to look at his behavior in the way that she's looking at it. And he'll change in his his own time, um, or maybe he won't. Whatever he does with his life is his own thing, but she needs to find some peace. And she needs to be happy and she needs to have um, compassion for her son in his choices. And, and we'll get there. She'll get there. She's, she's an awesome lady. And um, so I'm excited mm-hmm. to work with her. That's amazing. And, and I think it's, um, it's the best way to end this. Um, and I think also that uh, your work, it's, uh, deeply uh, fulfilling and people need you know people like you to help them and overcome these emotional burdens um, it's really I, I know that it's really hard for a parent to actually accept what his child is doing and accept that maybe um, you cannot change him and this is the way he is but as a parent it's really hard and you want to project a lot of stuff into him maybe to find their purpose in this career or that career but anyway uh, they'll live as they want not as you want and you will not find i think um you know uh, controlling others will not find your peace because you have to leave others what, what they want to do, they should do. Right. And yeah, uh, I, I want to thank you. I also want to, to ask where people can find you. Maybe uh, they need some one-on-one coaching with you or find more about your books. I'll, I'll put also a link or uh, your webpage in the description of this. And um, wanted to ask you where people can find you and speak with you, uh, Jill. So people are, yeah, you can just go to the website and see pretty much everything. My email address is there and my book. You can just click on all the things, click on the videos and whatever you find. Um, And just my email address, you're welcome to just email me a note and tell me if you'd like to have a conversation. And that's Jill, J-I-L-L at Jill Armijo. And that's A-R-M-I-J-O dot com. Perfect. Thank you so much. And thank you for your time. 